Uh, Today we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 34. And so if you will just take a moment and pause the video and turn there and then join back with us. And we'll just read it together here in just a moment. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28 to 34. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now, Matthew's purpose throughout his entire gospel, and especially with what we have studied so far, has been to show his readers that Jesus is indeed the Son of David, the promised eternal King who has come to restore the fallen world. Matthew gives us insight into Jesus' work as he taught people as one who had authority, as he had the power to make lepers clean, as he healed a centurion servant from a distance, and he bore the diseases of those who came to him. Even the wind and the waves obeyed his voice. Now, in recounting all this, Matthew's clear intention is to instill in his readers a heart of adoration and worship. Matthew wants you to love, worship, trust, and follow Jesus. The problem is that we, as sinful people, tend to misplace our affections. We pursue lesser things and reject that which is greater, that which is worthier of our devotion. And I think C.S. Lewis is right when he describes fallen humanity in his sermon, uh, The Weight of Glory. Here's what he says. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Now I think Matthew chapter 8 verses 28 through 34 demonstrates humanity's propensity to value mud pies over infinite joy. Matthew's goal in this section is rather complex. He's kind of merging two primary uh, topics, two primary truths. On the one hand, he wants his readers to see Jesus' unrestricted power and authority, even power and authority over his enemies. But on the other hand, he wants to show his readers the surprising devilishness of unbelief, to show how rejection of Jesus is somewhat demonic at its root. And so we're taking these two themes and we're putting them together. And I think if we put it another way, we can simply say it this way. The light whom darkness cannot overcome has come to defeat the darkness. The problem is that people, according to John 3.19, loved the darkness more than the light 
because their works were evil. Now, in this, Matthew shows us that Jesus is the Son of God, the victor over darkness, and yet, because of sin, people do not treasure him as they should. People do not cling to him in the way they were intended to. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus speaks uh, and he shows amazing power over the darkness. And it was something to be celebrated, but instead the Gadarenes rejected, rejected it, giving us a glimpse of the rejection that would characterize Jesus' ministry throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew. So, here we come to this section of text. Matthew picks back up his account of Jesus' authority by telling of the Messiah's encounter with two demoniacs. In our Western world, in, in, where we're a postmodern culture, where we're materialistic, scientific people, we often read these accounts with a great deal of skepticism. We tend to categorize e- evil and demons as something that belong to the pre-scientific world. Those are pre-scientific notions that have real no use in our informed society. There's a great deal of danger in this. It's the height of foolishness to think that only what we see and understand is real. Again, Lewis is helpful in making the point of why we need to pay attention to unseen spiritual realities. He warns about the imbalance of obsessing and rejecting the reality of the demonic. Here's what he says. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive, unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. In our materialistic society, our tendency leans at best toward a serious skepticism. We tend to undermine the reality of demonic power and spiritual warfare and at worst, we just show an outright rejection and disbelief that there's anything demonic. There's no such thing as the devil, no such thing as a spiritual realm in which spiritual beings are, are warring over our souls. The danger of this tendency is obvious. I think it's comparable to walking through eastern Africa's grasslands at night and pretending as if there's not lions about simply because we don't see them. That'd be foolishness, right? Lions would love the fact that you don't see them. Lions would love the fact that you pretend they're not there because blind prey makes for an easy meal. In the same way, the demons are not put off by the fact you deny their existence. They love it. It makes you easy pickings. So that being said, while Scripture would not have us obsess about the existence of demons and go looking for them under every rock, it's not as if demons flattened your tire or gave you COVID, but at the same time, Christ in the scriptures would have you acknowledge the fact that there is such a thing as a devil, there is such a thing as spiritual warfare, and there are greater things happening that we cannot see. Realities happening that have an eternal ramification. Now, I think if we understand demons rightly, we see these beings who want nothing more than for us to join them in eternal misery. 
Matthew, I, I, when I read Matthew, Matthew did not feel the need to defend the existence of these demons. He simply says that two demoniacs came and met Jesus. He wants you to assume their existence too. And so we're not going to go into the scientific notions of demons and, and the supernatural reality. We're just simply coming to the text, taking Matthew at his word, understanding that God is real, that Satan is real, that spiritual forces are real, and we come and we appreciate what Matthew is trying to teach us. Now, the reason that the region that Jesus had entered was a part of what was called the Decapolis. It was a group of cities built explicitly with the purpose of expanding Greco-Roman culture and idolatry. These were incredibly dark cities. They were filled with brothels and bathhouses and shrines to idols, There were places people could come and explore and expand their minds into Greco-Roman culture, worshiping Greco-Roman gods and taking part in Greco-Roman immorality. And the fact that these cities existed in Israel illustrates just how far the entire land had plunged into the darkness. There's a population made up of primarily Gentiles, hence the presence of pig herders in the region. And so when we come to these two demoniacs, living in tombs, living in a region in Israel where there is uh, incredibly dark things happening, we find that Jesus has stepped into an, an area of complete and total darkness and depravity. Apparently, these demon-possessed men were so powerful and violent that the area had to be completely avoided. People couldn't go that way anymore. Now, as I read the, this text, and as I read about what the demons were doing to this man, I just think it's difficult to imagine something more sinister and evil than a demon. These are spiritual beings who crave for nothing more than your death and destruction. In C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, they are uh, portrayed as greedily sipping on the wine of human misery and depravity. They love it. They, They lavish in it. They take it in. They enjoy it. They savor it. These are beings who are empowered by pure hatred for God, but knowing that they have no ability to harm God, seek to take out their revenge and hatred on the ones that bear His image. They're filled with complete, pure depravity, bloodthirst, and a craving for absolute ruin. That's virtually what we see with the demons in this text. They have taken human captives. They've driven them to dwell in tombs unclean, nasty, disgusting burial grounds. And as we see in other Gospels like Mark, these demons drive the demoniacs to harm themselves, to cut themselves. And then they keep the whole region in their reign of terror. But Matthew's descriptions of the demoniacs only seeks to highlight Jesus. It doesn't want to draw undue attention to the demons. The demons are not the focus of the text. It's dark and depraved and as dangerous as they are, the primary focus that Matthew wants to bring our eyes to is Jesus himself. Everything he says about the demons is not meant to highlight the demonic, but to highlight Christ in all of his glory. First, Jesus did not come to avoid darkness. He willingly steps into it. 
I have to think that Jesus got into the boat, went across the lake for the purpose of seeking out this man or these men living in the tombs. For the purpose of bringing deliverance to the darkest darkness in humanity. Now, Jesus didn't come to dwell in palaces or to relax in nice, comfortable mansions. He came to invade the graveyard. He came to push back the enemy in the darkness. He came to deliver captives, and that's what we see him doing in this text. Second, these fierce demoniacs were able to overpower all others so that no one could come their way. If you turn to Mark 5, you're given a, a bigger, a better description a little bit of these demoniacs. Mark wants you to see a little bit more uh, as to who these demoniacs were and what they were like. And here's what it says in verses uh, 3 and 4 of Mark 5. He, he's just taken one of the demoniacs, he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, despite their ability to overpower everyone else, despite their ability to break every chain. When Jesus comes, these demons are thrown into complete terror and have absolutely no power to resist him. The very demoniacs who could break every chain, who could break every bind, who could, who could push back any kind of soldier or, or group of men that would come after them, they cannot even stand in the presence of Jesus. They fall down before him. In verse 29, the demoniacs cry out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to tor- tor- torment us before the time? These demons seem to have an insight into Jesus' identity that few or no one had up to that point. Long before anyone else understood, these demons knew exactly who Jesus was, and they knew the implications of his identity. This was the king who would one day bring their absolute and total destruction. Based on their own confession, there was no question about it. They're not in some power struggle with him. This is the victor. This is the one to whom one day all authority would be handed over and they would be completely destroyed. Their reign would be over. They knew beyond a doubt that victory belonged to Jesus. They knew that their influence and their power were limited and would soon come to an end whenever God sovereignly declared it to be so. I think it's interesting that their primary concern at this point was that the light had already broken into the darkness. To them, the timing was off. They knew that they would be defeated. They knew that they would, there would be a day they would be destroyed and that their reign would come to an end. Their main concern is that it's already happening. I think this plays into Matthew's greater theme of an unexpected inaugurated kingdom. A kingdom that has broken into the present world and is yet to be fully established on earth. It's that not yet and and yet to come reality. That now and not yet reality that Jesus has brought the kingdom, the kingdom is growing, and one day it will fill fill the earth and be fully consummated on earth. That reality terrified these demons. 
the king had come, which means the kingdom was breaking into the darkness already before they had ever anticipated complete, total surprise and confusion. What are you doing here, son of God? Have you come before the time? And what they didn't realize is that the now and not yet kingdom of God has powerfully invaded the kingdom of darkness, light shining into the darkness, pushing it back, and would one day completely and totally destroy darkness. I think Matthew places special emphasis on the fact that these demons were held under the total authority of Christ. They could not even leave his presence without his permission. Here's what it says in verse 30. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the water. Now I think the image of these extremely fierce demons that have power to break chains that power to push back anyone that tries to subdue them, the image of them begging, begging, pleading, accentuates the concept of Jesus' authority. These powerful beings who were able to chase off everyone else who came their direction are brought to their knees. My friends, we have to see this. Jesus had the power to send them into the abyss, to bring their judgment on them right then and there, or to send them into the pigs. It wasn't for them to decide. It's with one little word that Jesus sends them into the pigs and sets the demoniacs free. Now, it's extremely important. This detail that Jesus only speaks one word is extremely important in Matthew's gospel. In other Gospels, Jesus says other things, but I think here Matthew wants us to see the same truth that Luther wrote about the Prince of Darkness Grimm in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. As strong and as powerful as the Prince of Darkness may seem, Luther says, one little word shall fail him. One little word will bring him down. And it's the word spoken by Christ. And when it comes to Christ and the demons, we must understand there is no dualistic power struggle. There's no tug of war going on in the cosmos. Christ is undeniably, unquestionably king. It's a present fact. He is not thwarted by demons. He's not at war with equals. He's not... He's not wondering what the outcome is going to be. The demons are not wondering what the outcome will be. The demons don't think they have a plan to beat Jesus. They know they're an already defeated enemy. Jesus has all power. He's the conquering king who has come to drive out the enemies away from his kingdom, to deliver his people, to set captives free. And he gives us the hope that one day... All evil will be forever at an end. In this way, he kind of stands up as a new and better Joshua, right? Who, who has come to the promised land and who is driving out. He's on a conquest, driving out everything unclean and unholy from his kingdom to set up shop, to set up his kingdom and set up his reign forever. And he's powerful when he does this. He is our mighty warrior and our victor. 
Now that seems like a great truth in and of itself. And I think while Matthew's primary point is to point us to Jesus, not to the demons, not to the pig herds, and not to the people themselves, but to Jesus, I do think there is a secondary point that emerges from this text. Now, having read about Jesus' victory over these infamous demons who held the entire area under their violent tyranny, I think we would expect the population to come out and at least applaud Jesus. At least come out and thank him. At least now they can go that direction without any fear, right? They see these two demoniacs that have been set free, and now surely they're going to be like, who is this man? We want him to stay. Look at what he's done. And that's when Matthew gives us the surprising news that no such thing happened. Look at verses verses 33 and 34. Here's what they say. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So here we have the, the herdsmen. They've witnessed what Jesus has done. They go back to the city to report. This is astounding. This is amazing. And they don't simply just say, all of our pigs are dead. Matthew makes it clear that they told the news of what Jesus had done for the demoniac. So it's not, ideally, they should have heard this message as incredibly good news. Hey guys, you remember those demoniacs that were living in the tombs? They were crazy, they were cutting themselves, and they were chasing off everyone else. Yeah, there's a man who set them free. By the way, our pigs are dead, but Jesus set them free. And instead, when they come out, they hear, our pigs are dead. The one who had the power over the fierce forces of darkness had come. He had the power to free those under evil's captivity. Standing right in front of these people was the victorious king who could deliver them forever, effectively, from darkness. No more would they need to fear such demons and depravity and, and, and the effects of the fall. This is one who had come to bring infinite joy and yet consider how they respond. Their actions mirror that of the demons. Now when the demons saw Jesus, they ran to him, they met him, and they begged him to send them away into the pigs. When these people see Jesus, they run to him, they meet him, and they beg him to leave. They are fixated on their dented economy. Our pigs are dead. In this way, Matthew's, I think, subtly showing us the devilishness of unbelief. My friends, we we mustn't think unbelief is something benign. What is at the heart and at the root of our disbelief in Jesus? What's at the root of our rejection of who Christ is? There's something utterly demonic about that. There's something utterly devilish about the way that we reject Jesus. And if we dissect dissect the the, the problem even further, we find that at the heart, at the root of these people's rejection is a love for darkness. Again, we are are mindful of John 3.19, which talks about the light coming into the darkness. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than their light because their works were evil. In C.S. Lewis's words, Jesus has come inviting people to an eternal holiday at the sea. But what do we do? We cling to our mud pies in the slum. 
We reject infinite joy because we're holding on to lesser things. We're holding on to deflated economies. We're holding on to our wealth. And we can't see that the king has come and has invaded the darkness and is going to put it to an end. Now, this is a natural response of materialistic humanity. We tend to become fixated on the impact God's work might have on our non-eternal aspects of life. Instead of keeping our eyes fixed on the things that are above, we obsess over what will happen to all our things below. Take these days that we're currently living in as an example. God is keeping His promises. People who have never slowed down to listen to the gospel are now forced to stop and they're listening on Facebook, they're watching it on TV, they're seeing it through all kinds of social media, and they're stopping to contemplate the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. People are actually becoming Christians. People are beginning to see their need to believe in Jesus. I mean, just think of how amazing of a testimony that during COVID, Christ is still saving sinners. And yet, what is it that takes up the focus of our thoughts and conversations? Do we celebrate the fact that people are being delivered from darkness? Do we celebrate the fact that Jesus, our powerful King, is working in our lives? He's pushing back darkness and sin and rebellion and demonic influence. And He's redeeming, redeeming our fallen world. Is, are, we, are we celebrating the fact that His promises are victoriously marching forward day by day by day? Or are we busy lamenting stock market crashes, economic dips, and all the inconveniences of life in this day? Do we spend more time complaining at the lack of toilet paper and the inconvenience of supermarket shelves being emptied when we forget that there is one who has come and he's the bread of life? So that now we never have to hunger spiritually ever, ever again. It's not that all these things are not lamentable. To be sure, it's sad that our economy is deflating. It's sad that people are losing their jobs. It's sad that we have to do things we're not used to. It's sad that life is more uncomfortable. However, we mustn't forget that the loss of all of these things is not even worth thinking about. They're not even comparable to the glory that is to be found in Jesus Christ. The drowning of 2,000 pigs was infinitely less important than the truth that the Son of God had invaded the darkness. If Christ's kingdom means the loss of all our worldly mammon, the loss of our, our 401ks, the loss of our savings account, the emptiness of our pantries, an unemployment form, the uncomfortability of living in days that, are, that, that people are, are calling comparable to World War II. Is it not losing all of, our work, all of our mammon? Is that not worth having the kingdom of Christ? Isn't he infinitely worth more? I think Matthew says without a question... The growing of Christ's kingdom, the pushing back of the darkness, the, the freedom of captives, the defeat of the devil and his forces is far more worthy 
And it's worth the shrinking of our dependence on wealth. My friends, if we have nothing else during this time but to think about how we actually depend on Christ, how his kingdom is firm, the riches of heaven aren't depleted, the economy of heaven's not dented, Christ the king is not wondering what's going to happen, is it not worth us going through this to realize that that green little piece of paper that we have worshipped all of our lives is actually just paper? That, that, that number in our bank accounts, just a number. And it's worth it being empty for the sake of the kingdom. It's worth getting sick to realize that we have eternal life. It's worth fearing death and seeing death coming on our door to remember that we have the one who is the resurrection and the life. My friends, the kingdom has come in Christ Do not lament the death of your pigs. To these Gentiles living in the dark shadow of the Decapolis, Jesus was nothing more than a Jewish holy man who had come to inconveniently disrupt their their, their, their way of life. And so they missed out on the beauty of the two former demoniacs sitting in their right mind, now able to worship God and see Jesus. They missed out on the beauty of Jesus himself in whom rested all salvation from sin and all evil. They clung to their pigs and they missed out on the pearl. And this is the type of rejection that we continue to see time and time again throughout Matthew's gospel. It's not just Jews that rejected Jesus. It was Gentiles too as people continued to turn their backs on the Savior. Now, I think though this section may not directly connect to Matthew's greater theme of discipleship, I do think it indirectly connects. It gives us an implicit warning against misplacing our affections and priorities. To have misplaced affections is quite devilish. It's it's demonic. The demons recognized Jesus as the Son of God and begged him to send them away. Get away. Let us get away from you, Jesus. You're terrifying. They begged him to send them away into the pigs. The Gadarenes recognized him as a man of power, but asked him and begged him to leave their region. Do we, in all of our recognition of Jesus as the promised king, do we beg him to leave our lives alone? Do we beg him to leave our economy intact? Do we beg him to leave us in our darkness? Just just leave us alone. We're comfortable. Please go away. Do we mourn the loss of our pig herds and miss out on the beauty of people finding freedom in Jesus? My friends, this is a real question to ask in these days. Are you willing to suffer the loss of all things for the sake of gaining Christ? So as your pastor and a friend and a fellow sufferer in Christ with you, I ask you to not lament the death of your temporary, worldly, non-eternal pigs and fail to see the glory that the Son of God has broken into the darkness and has defeated Satan. I think this text has many implications and applications that we can have, but I want to just highlight three 
implications that it has for our lives. I think first, uh, Jesus as the victor over darkness means that he is worthy of our greatest adoration. We'll deal with each one of these as I go through them. But second, if Jesus is the victor over darkness, then we must turn from the darkness which he came to destroy. And then finally, Jesus as the victor over darkness means that we can look forward in faith to a future kingdom, a world in which there will be nothing cursed and evil in it ever again. So let's just talk about that first application. Jesus is worthy of our adoration. That's the primary application of this text, and it's the primary application of all of Matthew's gospel as a whole. Matthew simply wants us to see and savor the Son of God. Matthew's goal is to bring us into a deeper faith, a deeper trust, and an adoration of who Jesus is, to to take him in and to be satisfied and filled with all of his glory. He is the God in flesh, the son of David, the new Moses, the fulfillment of the law, the healer of lepers, the one who sacrificially bears away the consequences of the fall and brings us back into the presence of God. He's the commander of the winds and waves, and he's the one in whose presence fierce demons tremble and fear the judgment that he will bring at the right time. So Matthew invites us to follow the one for whom all history is waited. And in this, Matthew displays Jesus in all of his beauty and his glory, and he warns us against rejecting the gracious Savior who stands before us. He calls us to faith and trust in Jesus alone. The coming of his kingdom is far more glorious and beautiful than our economy, our kingdom, our country going and going and going on forever. The coming of his kingdom is far more beautiful than our favorite politicians being elected. The king coming into the darkness offering infinite joy should make us give up and our clinging to mud pies. He has stepped into the darkest darkness and the darkest darkness cannot overcome his light. And it is through him that sinners are delivered from the domain of darkness, that they become sons and daughters and that they are given an eternal place in the kingdom of the Son. So the question is, do you see Jesus for who he really is? Do you adore him for who he really is? Do you see him in all of his victorious beauty and glory and want him more than anything else? Or are your eyes filled with other things like the floating corpses of pigs? Do you lament not having your comforts? Are you searching for satisfaction, for peace, when he offers it right in front of us? A second application that comes from the text is that we must turn away from darkness. 1 John 3, 8 says this, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, I think one clear indicator that we have seen and savored Jesus in the way we should is that we begin to repent of sin, that we begin to turn from our rejection. Imagine how illogical it would have been for these two men, having been set free from the demons, to go back and take residence up in the tombs again, to keep out renting the tombs as their abode. Just imagine how foolish that would be. 
And yet, my friends, Jesus has come offering something even greater. He's brought freedom from sin and freedom from a slave master who wants us dead. Christ came to destroy the work of the devil, meaning that he came to destroy sin's hold on you. If the devil is a slave master, then sin is the chains that he uses to bind you down. Christ came to break those chains. So having been set free, what sense does it make for you to continue in those sins? What sense does it make to reshackle yourself back up? To resubmit yourself to slavery? It makes no sense. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 15 powerfully tells us, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. My friends, do you understand the beauty of the gospel? The beauty of the gospel is simply this. Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh. Why? So that he could come and destroy the devil's death-dealing power. How did he do this? Through his own death on the cross. He took on flesh so that he could bleed. He took on flesh so that God's punishment could be poured out physically on him. He took on flesh and bone so that he could feel the weight of the cross, so that he could feel the, the prick of the nail, so that he could feel the thorns on his brow, so that he could deliver you from the power of the devil. And when he died, he rose again, he crushed Satan, the cross won the victory, and now we are set free. The implication of it is that we are free from death and we are free from the devil's lifelong slavery, a slavery to sin. And because Christ has destroyed the power of Satan through the cross, Because Christ is victorious, we now share in his victory over Satan. Remember these demoniacs? These were just demoniacs. These were just demons. This wasn't Satan himself, the champion demon, okay? And all of those demons were powerful enough to chase off everyone else, to break every chain. No one could subdue him, subdue these demoniacs. But in Jesus, we're able to defeat Satan himself, Consider what it says in 1 Corinthians 16, 20, when Paul speaks of a time when the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Think about James 4 that says if we submit ourselves to God, we can resist the devil and he'll run from us. The devil, chief demon, prince of the world, slave master, spiritual Pharaoh himself will run from those who submit themselves to God. 1 John 5.18 says that the evil one does not even touch those who have been born again, meaning those that have a new life in Christ and who have turned from sin. Christ has set the captive free, and we are free indeed. My, my, my friends, my church members, my, my family, Listen to this. You need no longer be chained down to the addictions. You need no longer be chained down into the habits. You need no longer be chained down into the shame of returning back to the vomit again and again. Christ has set you free. 
Come out of the tomb. Christ has set you free. Stop cutting yourself with stones. Christ has set you free. Enjoy life with hands that are able to be lifted up to God without chains. Turn from sin. Reject the darkness. And enjoy freedom in the kingdom of the Son. Now, third and finally, I think we, we come to another a- application. By the demon's own acknowledgement in this text, there is coming a day when the Son of Man will bring judgment against all things evil. They say that. Have you come to tor- torment us, to judge us before the time? So they themselves acknowledge there's a day coming when they, as evil beings, as spiritual enemies of God, will be effectively judged and tormented and, de- and their power will end. Satan, the murderous lion, has had his teeth knocked out through the cross. And he's chained and he's defeated. But there's a day when he will no longer even be able to growl at the people of God anymore. These hordes of demons will lose their power to influence, to tempt, to nudge us into rebellion against God. Imagine how freeing that will be to to have a true relationship with other people without being tempted to lust, without being tempted toward envy or jealousy. Imagine how imagine a life being able to live free and to be good at things and to love living in the kingdom, to go play and explore and and walk with God and not be tempted to pride. Imagine a life that you're able to do all things without being weighed down with this nudging in the direction toward evil. What's that day going to be like? Well, Revelation chapter 22 verses 3 through 5 gives us a glimpse of that day. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, in this world that He is bringing. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In the kingdom of Christ, every effect of the fall will be wiped away. There will be no more harmful microbes, No more disastrous hurricanes, no more painful losses, no more death, and no more devil. We will finally be free to serve the Lord without hindrance of sin, without the chains of addictions, without the powerful demonic nudging to just do things our own way. Our King, the Son of David, Jesus Christ, will reign forever and ever and ever, and the darkness of evil will rise in his kingdom no more. My friends, I hope you don't just have a false hope in that day. This isn't just a crutch to get us through COVID. This is the truth. This is the reality. That day is coming, and nothing will hinder that day from dawning in our lives. The fact that Jesus comes, these these demons fall, powerful demons fall and beg and plead, reminds us that there's a day every knee will bow, even the demons. Every tongue will confess, even Satan, that Jesus is Lord. And on that day, darkness will be dispelled forever. And we will live in the kingdom of light, basking in the beautiful sun of our Savior, 
basking in the warmth of his joy, an infinite joy. And the holiday at sea will finally come and we will not even miss our mud pies, our economy, our presidents, our senates, our anything. We will not miss anything because we will be fulfilled and satisfied only in Jesus. And so my friends, we wait, basking now in the beauty of our Savior and looking forward to the final fall of Satan. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this great and exciting truth. Father, I pray that as we uh, continue through Matthew, God, and as we contemplate the gospel in Matthew, Father, that you will help us, Lord, to not be lulled to sleep, Father, but help us to be excited about the fact that your kingdom has come in Jesus. Not even COVID can stop it. Not even economic depression can stop it. No recession can hinder it. God, no job loss changes it. God, no death can keep it from coming. Christ is the victor, and in him we trust, and in him alone. Satisfy us as we see and savor savor our great Savior, Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. We love you. God bless. If you need anything, please call us.